Okay, well, good morning. Uh, as Penny mentioned, um, my name is Tobias, and I'm not normally on this side of the podium at this point in the service. That's his job, but um, I am so thankful for the opportunity to open up God's Word for us this morning. If you have been with us for a while, then you know that um, Penny has been walking us through the book of Exodus, and we've come to the point in that narrative where God has miraculously redeemed his people from the hands of Pharaoh. And he has taken them, as the text says, on eagle's wings to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there he has descended in fire and smoke with trembling earthquakes and even prohibitions about coming near the mountain upon pain of death. And he's done this so that he can begin to structure the life of his people through the issuance of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and so for the last couple of weeks, Penny has been walking us through the first two of those commandments, and he has reminded us that the Lord alone is the one true God, and that he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, not by man-made imagery. And so this morning, we have the privilege of taking up his third commandment. And so I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Exodus 20, verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7. You also find it printed in the, um, in the order of worship. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Mighty God, we come to you humbly. We come to you with thanksgiving, thankful for your word, thankful for your kindness to your people. We ask that you sanctify us this morning. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we ask that your name be magnified today and that you, through your word, will call us to faithfulness, and that you will give us a vision of your kindness and your love and your grace. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Names play a big role in our lives as human beings, don't they? And yet I think that uh, we have a sort of conflicted relationship with them. On the one hand, the way we use them suggests that we think they have inherent value and lasting significance. For example, those of you who have children, just take a moment and think about how much time you spent, how many conversations or maybe arguments you had how many books or blogs or um, family trees you scoured to land upon that perfect name for your child. On the other hand, the way we use names suggests that we think very little of them, that we think they don't really have any lasting or inherent value, and that they're there really for our own convenience to be laid aside or taken up, depending on the circumstance. There's probably no better example of this than Juliet's plea to Romeo 
in Shakespeare's beloved play. You remember the scene. Two young star-crossed lovers. They can't come together because their names don't fit. They're from warring families. You know, the Carters and the Wakefields. I'll leave that one there. <clears throat> My family has been watching Andy Griffith. Anyway, what does Juliet do? She pleads with Romeo to doff his name and take up a new one so that they can come together without fear. After all, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So which is it? Do names have inherent value and permanence? Or are they just arbitrary conveniences? How should we use them? These questions are brought into sharp focus when we consider the name of God, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. And so as we consider this third commandment and what it means for us, I'd like us to do this by looking at three different questions. First, what is his name and why is it so significant? Second, what is our duty? And third, what are God's promises with regard to his name? So taking up the first question, what is his name and why is it so significant? The larger catechism, question 112, asks the question, what is required in the third commandment? And the answer it provides is a helpful starting point for us in understanding what his name is. Essentially, it says, everything whereby he makes himself known. That's a really broad answer, isn't it? And you can imagine that that includes a host of things. It includes his creation. It includes his, his word. Uh, but this morning, I'd like us to focus on just two. His Old Testament covenantal name and the name of his son, our Lord and Savior. So first, regarding his covenantal name, the book of Exodus has already made it abundantly clear that his name is Yahweh. You remember the story in Exodus 3? Moses is tending his, <coughs> his flocks near Mount Horeb. And God appears to him in a flaming bush that is not consumed. It is a holy and awesome sight. And yet Moses does not flee. And God proceeds to tell Moses, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have heard the cries of the sons of Israel. And I've come to deliver them. Go to them, he says to Moses, and tell them this. And Moses says, okay, but they might ask what your name is. And God says to him, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. It reminds me of the scene in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy where Shasta finally meets Aslan, but his identity has not yet been fully revealed. Do y'all remember? Some of you might. And as it slowly dawns on Shasta that he has come, not to harm him, but to help him, he musters up courage, and he asks, Who are you? And Aslan replies, Myself. And then he says it louder, Myself. And then he whispers it, Myself. And Shasta, recognizing the power of the lion, but trusting in the kindness of his voice, is overcome with both fear and joy. 
And I think this is kind of like what we see here at the burning bush. God tells Moses, my name is I am. There's no predicate. Nothing else needs to be said. His name is his identity. Yahweh is God and God is Yahweh. And he's come not to consume, but to deliver and to dwell among them. But you know, his name doesn't just reveal his identity. It also reveals his character. For example, in the context of the book of Exodus, as the name Yahweh punctuates the narrative through threats and through plagues and through miracles, it underscores God's holiness, his strength, and his faithfulness. And it does this with such force and clarity that the name Yahweh itself comes to reveal the Lord in all of his glory. And this is why later on in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, after Moses has interceded on behalf of the Israelites because of their sin in the golden calf, and as he prays to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory, God answers him, but not with a visible picture. Instead, he sets him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by him, and he proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's name is who he is. And it stands as a memorial to his transcendent glory, his infinite power, and his condescending love. It's no wonder then that even long after the death of Moses, as the Israelites were facing the loss of the promised land due to their own disobedience, that we hear the prophet Isaiah in chapter 63 again extolling the name of the Lord. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. But you know, for us to understand fully what God's name is and why it's so significant, we have to look to the New Testament because it's there in the person and the work of our Savior where these themes of his identity, his glory, and his love are brought together in beautiful harmony. Indeed, this is why we read in the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel that the Son of God would be named Jesus, the Lord saves. This is why in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, perhaps reflecting on Yahweh's exclusive claim to be a Savior in Isaiah 43, we hear Peter proclaim of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is why in the midst of the I am statements in John 8, 58, no doubt drawing on his father's words to Moses from out of the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, my name is I am. That we hear Jesus respond with authority to the doubting Jews. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Indeed, this is why later on in chapter 17 of the same gospel, as Jesus is contemplating his approaching death and he's praying on behalf of his disciples, we hear him say, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. And finally, 
It is because of this beautiful harmony and our Lord's perfect faithfulness that we read in that magnificent hymn in Philippians 2 to Jesus. Therefore God exalted him, and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, do you see how glorious the name of God is? Do you see that it proclaims <clears throat> the entire range of his self-revelation, his perfect holiness, his unequaled power, and his redemptive love, and that it has come to climactic fullness in the person and work of our Savior, indeed, in the name of Jesus? His name is immeasurably precious. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In light of God's name and its significance, turning to the second question, what is our duty? The commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But what does that look like? And notice that we're asking the question, what is our duty? We need to look at this commandment both positively and negatively. What is God calling us to do with regard to his name? And what is he forbidding and I think that the first thing we need to do is notice what's not said. The text does not say, you shall not speak the name of the Lord your God in vain. It says, you shall not take it in vain. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I think this commandment has nothing to do with our speech about God, because I think it does. But I also think that it has much, much uh, it's, it's much, much broader. And here's why. This verb take is never used in the Old Testament by itself to refer to speech. Instead, it means to lift up. Or it means to carry like you'd carry an infant. Or it means to wear like you'd wear a badge or a name tag or clothing. And it's this last meaning, to wear, that is especially significant for our understanding of what it means to take the Lord's name. You see, there are only three times in the Old Testament where this verb, take, has the noun name as its object. You shall not take what? The name. And that's here in the third commandment, and then it's also just a few chapters down the road in Exodus 28. So go ahead and flip over to Exodus 28. And while you're turning there, it's important for us to recognize what's going on. After giving the, the commandments, God has begun to provide more structure to the life of his people. For example, he's given details about the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And he's given details about uh, the building of the tabernacle. And now he has begun to give instructions regarding the Levitical priesthood even regarding what they are to wear. And so we pick up in verse 12, and we read, You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names, that is, take their names, same verb, before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. And again, just skipping down to verse 29, we read this, 
Aaron shall carry the names, that is, take the names, same verb again, of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Aaron then, in taking their names, was not speaking their names, but actually physically wearing their names. But you know, he wasn't just wearing their names. He was also wearing another name. Notice what's inscribed on Aaron's turban, just a few verses down in verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. That is, holy to Yahweh. And so from this, I think two fundamental ideas emerge regarding what it means to take a name. Reception and representation. Aaron had received names, most significantly the Lord's name. And as he bore them on his shoulders and over his heart and on his head, he was to represent them faithfully in his ministry as a priest. This is exactly what the Israelites were being called to do with regard to God's name and this commandment. You see, it wasn't just the priesthood that had received the name of the Lord but the entire covenant community. You know that beautiful benediction in number six that we oftentimes hear Penny speak over us at the end of our service? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. We hear the Lord's name spoken over us three times, but we don't often hear what follows in verse 27. So they shall invoke, literally put, my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. All of God's people, not just the priests, had received the name of the Lord. And within the context of the covenant at Sinai, this makes perfect sense. Remember the passage leading up to the giving of the, of the commandments, Exodus 19.4? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You shall be my possession, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had redeemed the Israelites from Pharaoh. He had claimed them as his own possession. He had marked them with his name. And now in light of his saving work, they were being called to represent him, to reflect his holy character and to walk in all his ways. In light of this, coming back to the commandment, we can see that for the Israelites to take the Lord's name in vain, literally to take it for nothingness, was fundamentally a failure to walk in all his ways. It was to receive the name of God, to claim to be his possession, and to enjoy the abundant blessings that that entailed, but to choose instead to live in disobedience, failing to reflect his holiness and acting and speaking in a manner that would bring shame upon his name. And as I'm sure you can imagine, there were many ways for the Israelites to do this. And these are variously indi indicated in Scripture with the term blasphemy or phrases like to profane the Lord's name. Let me mention just a few examples to illustrate. With regard to their speech, 
To curse God, obviously, was to take his name in vain. Leviticus 24, 11. Likewise, swearing falsely by his name, Leviticus 19, 12. Or speaking his word falsely like a lying prophet, Jeremiah 23, 25. But to take his name in vain was not limited to sins of speech. Indeed, sacrificing to idols, Leviticus 18, 21. Touching unholy things, Leviticus 22, 2. And even the Eighth Commandment, stealing, Proverbs 30, verse 9. These were always the Israelites could take the Lord's name in vain. In other words, this commandment was a comprehensive commandment for them. One governing every aspect of their lives. After all, they had received the name of the Lord and they bore it moment by moment. Perhaps there's, be there's no better summary of the Israelites' duty with regard to the name of God then found in Deuteronomy 28:58 to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book to fear this honored and awesome name the Lord your God perhaps you're sitting here today thinking okay i see that but that was israel what about us but may i remind you that we too have taken the name of the Lord. We call ourselves Christians. We've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the same words that were spoken over Israel have been spoken over us. You are a chosen nation, race, Peter says. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we have likewise been called, as Paul reminds us, to live in a manner worthy of that calling. How do we do that? Perhaps we should begin with the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, the third commandment is a summons for us to honor the name of our Lord in thoughts, words, and deeds. And so perhaps you should ask yourself this morning, how am I taking his name? In the things that I do and in the words that I say, am I bringing his name honor or shame? When you speak the name of Jesus, does it reflect your love for him and your gratefulness for what he's done for you? Or has the luster of his name grown dim through your flippancy? Are you, are you prepared to endure hardship for his name's sake? Or are you ashamed of it and apt to deny it? When you're at home or on the basketball court, when you're in your car or at the grocery store, when you're at school or at work, do you reflect the patience and kindness and love of our Lord to your neighbor? Or does your treatment of others obscure his character? When you're alone, are the decisions you make and the behaviors in which you engage consistent with the God you claim to serve and whose name you bear? 
Or do they show disregard for the one who sees in secret? Dear friends, we who are Christians bear the name of Christ. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Perhaps there's no better summary of what it means for us to take the name of the Lord than Paul's words in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And finally, in light of his name and what we are called to do, turning to our final question, what are God's promises? What does he promise with regard to his name? The second half of the test text answers this question in no uncertain terms, doesn't it? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God promises judgment for disobedience, plain and simple. And God is faithful to his promises, isn't he? Indeed, this is why we see his judgment meted out time and again in Scripture. When the Israelites worshipped the golden calf and held a feast to Yahweh, the sons of Levi strapped swords on their thighs and struck 3,000 of the offenders down. When in Leviticus 24, the son of Shalemith blasphemed and cursed God, the congregation laid their hands on his head and stoned him to death. When in Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva showed contempt for the Lord and sought to use his name as some type of magical incantation to exercise a demon, they themselves were stripped naked by the demoniac, suffered wounds at his hands, and were put to flight. And this is why to those who would claim with lying lips, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus promised in Matthew 7 to respond with that terrible declaration. I never knew you. Depart from me. Indeed, to take the Lord's name in vain is not a mere trifle, but a grave thing. It is to set oneself up as God's enemy and to court his wrath. And as the writer of Hebrew reminds us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you know, if that were all that could be said regarding God's promises toward his name, the Lord, perfect in his righteousness, would stand justified in his judgment. And yet, what hope would remain for you and for me? To those who time and again fall short of his glory, could a word of comfort ever be spoken? But the good news is, that is not all that can be said. Long ago, in a garden, because of his steadfast love for sinners, to those who had shown contempt for his word, he made a promise, secured by his own name, to send a champion to crush the serpent and to bring us life. And friends, this is why, in the midst of God's promise in Ezekiel 36, to vindicate the holiness of his great name, which had been run through the mud time and time again by his people, we hear not a terrible threat of judgment, but a glorious promise of restoration. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Friends, these are glorious words, aren't they? But please don't misunderstand. The astounding mystery of the gospel is not that God failed to keep his promise that of judgment against those who would profane his name, but that his holy wrath was poured out on the only one who ever bore his name perfectly, his son. Indeed, the blessed scandal of the gospel is that while blasphemous hypocrites slapped, spat upon, and condemned to death Jesus, the Prince of Life, on a trumped-up charge of blasphemy, God was all the while reconciling the world to himself, even, as, even while we were yet sinners. And this is why Paul could write in his first letter to Timothy, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy say, saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning as a Christian, Ashamed of how you've carried the name of Christ. Look around and join the club. And then turn to the Lord, confess your sin, and take comfort in the Lord and his love and his character, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're overwhelmed by the burden of your sin, but the name and person of Jesus has been unknown to you. Today, he offers himself to you freely. Will you listen to him? Will you trust and receive his name? Will you call on him, not with mere empty words, Lord, Lord, but with all of your heart and with a sincere faith. For the prophet Zechariah reminds us that a day of judgment is coming when the Lord, for his own name's sake, will cut off the names of the idols from the land. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. But today, Jesus says, come. Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful 
for what you have done for us, poor sinners. Oh, Lord, we pray that your name will be magnified in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have put it upon us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your astounding love and grace. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.